Now, the more contentious claim in my country would be to say that actually the real base of support for, for Donald Trump came from the center. And I think that that's, I think that that's basically true. That mm. the, the problem with Donald Trump and, and the discourse around him is that he did so much issue bundling that he was appealing to a real far-right anger and xenophobia with the claims of building a wall and a very simple, moderate populism when he said, we talked about draining the swamp and cracking down on institutions of the state and just making life simple, uh, reducing taxes, reducing the side of the state, just just making life easier for middle, upper middle class white people. You know, So I think that's, we're wrong to think that the bit real base of support in, across Europe and North America uh, for new populist authoritarianism is coming from the extremes. I think that the real, the real heft, the base of support is, is coming from people who at least understand themselves as moderate. Three, it's like three, three varieties of shitty centrism. It's like the Duff, you know, the Duff beer thing, which, which has exactly the same thing going to Duff premium, Duff normal, Duff alcohol. Centrist <laughs> Hey there, this is Alpha Bunga Bunga. A special welcome to our new listeners. I'm Alex Hochili. On this program, what we try to do is popularize discussion about the crisis of our times. We can all see how, around the world, the neoliberal order is falling apart, and the givens of the past 30 years don't seem so secure anymore. Another way to put this is that the so-called end of history is over. It's like politics is back, but in strange new forms. Alpha Bunga Bunga, then, is the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Today's episode is particularly apposite. We're talking to David Adler, a writer and researcher based in London, whose recent piece in the New York Times caused a bit of a stir. He argues that rather than it being the political extremes that are a danger to democracy, it's in fact centrists who are the least keen on democracy and its institutions. So what you're going to hear next is a chat between myself and the usual Alpha Bunga Bunga crew, and then our 30-minute interview with David Adler. And finally, a quick discussion drawing out the most interesting and salient features. If you're new to us, please remember to subscribe and do tell your friends. Enjoy. All right. Hi, everyone. This is Alex Hochuli. With me is the regular Alpha Bunga Bunga crew. We have George Hoare. Hi, George. How's the audio? Hey, yeah, yeah. Get, getting better. Thanks for asking. Uh, we have Phil Cunliffe. Phil, how's the Brexiting? Brexiting is good. Good. Excellent. Glad to hear it. Uh, missing today, we have Ben Fogel. Uh, he won't be with us this week. He'll be with us next time. Um, all right. So this week, we are talking about something called centrist authoritarianism. Uh, we're really happy to have David Adler on, who uh, Phil will be interviewing really shortly. But just to have a little chat, what did we think about centrist authoritarianism? This idea comes from an article which came out in the New York Times about a month ago. Um, Phil? It struck me intuitively as right. Uh, it seemed to me that the, it corresponded very well with my experience in British politics over the last couple of years in terms of seeing that there was a very uh, a constituency that was smack bang in the middle, um, politically, lib, you know, kind of liberal, socially liberal um, politically liberal center and so on that was viscerally hostile to democracy. So when I read David's piece in the New York Times, it seemed to me to explain basically British politics for the last two years. 
Yeah, and uh, for listeners' benefit, this uh, if you want to read the article, it's going to be in the show description, so you can just click there uh, and have a read of it. Um, George, any like to put it, I guess, in popular terms, like what is centrist authoritarianism? I mean, what what do you understand by it, and why does yeah, it resonate? I, yeah, I think this is a it's an important article to to discuss, and I think it's great that we're going to be chatting with David later because it's kind of it's related to that the horseshoe theory that we've. Uh, I think we've sent some memes around about, and we've certainly discussed off air a lot, this idea that basically the two ends of the left-right spectrum come together and they're the they're the anti-democrats. They're the ones who, you know, the dangerous ones. And so all the people in the center, they're the sensible, um, pro, pro-system, pro-democracy, not authoritarian in the, in the slightest, um, good people of, of politics. But actually, I think this, you know, the thesis that David puts forward turns this on its head a little bit because it shows um that basically that's that's not the case you have a lot of people in the middle who really don't care that much about um about democracy and are, are quite prepared to throw away some of the um some of the things which they purport or they assume that uh or other people assume that they value and this is basically it maybe centrists are the baddies this is what we're going to discover so i'm going to hand over to phil who's going to interview david now hi this is philip cunliffe thanks for joining us david it's a pleasure to be here Tell us, David, what's the gist of the article that you published in the New York Times? So across Europe and North America, we know that established democracies are confronting a range of new challenges. Some of those are lobbying by special interests and sort of uh, challenges to the executive by uh, lobbyists and all sorts of corporate interests. Uh, We also know that there's this rise of these new populist movements from Italy to to the UK, to the United States. And another, which gets a lot of play in the United States, is about increasing polarization and the threats that polarization play to our ability to hold together a democratic commons. Uh, and a lot of these new challenges have led people to really worry about so-called democratic deconsolidation, which is the fear that democracy would cease to be the only game in town, that we might be sliding into a, a new brand of authoritarianism in a way that we never thought established democracies could. Now, among these new challenges, one of the ones, one of the pieces that's gotten most play is the decline in support for democracy among voters. That's got a lot of attention. Uh, and one of the things we want to know, especially here in Britain with the, with the Brexit debate, but also in the case of Trump, is what is driving or wh- where is that threat to democracy coming from? Now, some people look at economic factors like trade and job insecurity, which can breed a lot of anxiety and, and, and that anxiety leading to a kind of populist uh, appeal. Other people point to sociological factors, non-economic factors like race or demographic change, which can breed a kind of resentment for outgroups that then undermines faith in, in democracy. And the third group focus on kind of generational factors like age, which, which is to say that young people like us uh, are disconnected from the Second World War, which endowed our parents and grandparents with great reverence for democracy. But for some reason, I found no one had really looked at the distribution of democratic attitudes across the political spectrum, the left-right spectrum. And that was because the answer seemed obvious. There's an implicit assumption that if there were a threat coming from the left-right spectrum, it was coming from the extremes, the far left and the far right. And the basis for that was the idea that there was a kind of elective affinity between extreme political views and support for strong men to implement them. And so I went back to those data. I went back to the World Value Survey, the European Value Survey, two big 
data sets that focus on cross-national opinions of, of a various, various social and political attitudes. I tried to test that hypothesis. And I wanted to examine sort of support for democracy, support for democratic institutions like civil rights and free and fair elections, and also support for uh, an authoritarian alternative, a strong man who doesn't have to bother with parliament. And to my surprise, I found that hostility to democracy across the board was highest not at the extremes, not among the far left or the far right, but in the center. So people identified as centrists were far more hostile than their neighbors on either side of the political spectrum across this wide range of indicators. Now, there's a number of takeaways from this, uh, and I'm, we're going to get into them today for sure. But just one that I wanted to highlight off the bat is to say that regardless of what you think about the findings, the data, et cetera, what's remarkable, what's striking about the, the data as I see it, and kind of unequivocally, is just how little we know about centrists, just how much we take for granted in our one dimension of politics that, oh, the center must be this kind of safe haven for democratic attitudes. And what these data show, if nothing else, is that we need to spend a lot more time figuring out who are these centrists, what do they think about democracy, uh, what are their values, and, and, and how are they thinking about our current political situation. So it, it kind of upended some of the conventional wisdom around the, uh, the, this looming threat to democracy and where exactly it's coming from. Could you perhaps give us some concrete characterizations of who these centrists are who have this affinity for non-electoral politics, affinity for authoritarian solutions. Do you have any sense of what they uh, demographically might look like, what kind of people there might be, who which kind of politicians represent them, what kind of values they might hold? What are the characteristics of the political center? So just off the bat, I want to say that you know, in my analysis, I don't find large uh, sort of demographic differences between the center, the left, or the right based on indicators like income or education or age levels. So, and, and in fact, in, in, the, in, the, in the quantitative analysis I run, I control for those variables and find that the differences we see remain quite robust to the inclusion of those covariates. So some people have wanted to say that these people are sort of less educated, the people at the center, but it's, it doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. We can't really describe um, uh, the differences between these groups based on uh, omitted variables, as we might say. I think that there's something actually quite crucial happening here with uh, the placement that people have in terms of their politics. So then what, what is that politics, to answer your question? So I think in terms of the political representation that these centrists uh, would seek, I think we have to divide. We have to be a bit more specific. I mean, I think I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek by putting them all in one category, but I think there really are uh, varieties of centrism that we have to engage. Now, the first is a kind of convicted centrism, which is more of an elite centrism. This is the kind of the third-way clique. Um, these are people who think of the, of the center as a kind of non-ideological, common-sense sphere of policymaking. They believe in bipartisanship. Um, and they're very, very skeptical of ideology, right? But because they're skeptical of ideology, that, that means they're also very skeptical of democracy. This is where the timing becomes important. We live in a moment where ideology is um, coming out from underneath it, the third way rock and becoming relevant again to our democratic politics. I think in a very exciting way, also in a very dangerous way. But it's encouraging people to to find a kind of, uh, you know, move out from the sense that we are being governed by technocrats to, to kind of reclaim a politics for better or for worse. But of course, this this arouses some, some real suspicion among convicted centrists 
who who are quite concerned about the reemergence of ideology into our politics. So that's a kind of that's one that's one demographic or one constituency of centrists that I think is important to look at. The second, uh, which is the, the the majority, I would say, is a kind of apathetic centrism, which is less elite and more of a mass centrism. And here we find much higher levels of apathy, and we can certainly we know from the data that that apathy is correlated with with position in the center, uh, and we also know that position that that type of apathy is really strongly correlated with support for strong leaders with authoritarian tendencies. So this overlaps with technocracy in a crucial way, right? It's about having a desire to avoid, you know, uh, democracy and have a uh, having faith in a leader who can do the work of politics on behalf of citizens without their engagement. But it's premised on a kind of desire to disengage. The third uh, and final centrism is a kind of ambivalent centrism, by which I mean that people are torn between some policy views uh, on, on one side of the spectrum and, and other, some other policy views on the other. And there's some literature to suggest that, like, that, that that constituency is quite real, that people – that the left-right spectrum is not really capturing well um, their diversity of views. But it's also a relevant category because these people are very difficult to represent politically. And so here the timing question also becomes relevant because if you're someone who has a kind of mix of views and you're trying to find your place in the, in the spatial um, sphere, that you know, find the, the, the party that best represents you in that, in that spatial model, that can also be very, very difficult as parties polarize, as parties come to inhabit uh, these sort of more ideological positions. So it also makes sense that that ambivalent centrist category would be also motivated to, uh, to, or pushed toward uh, a more authoritarian authoritarian uh, alternative and push towards uh, appealing to to less democratic attitudes. That's really interesting what you said about the link between apathy and authoritarianism. And I think you probably I think it probably reaches back much further than um, you probably find evidence for it that reaches back much further than our current moment. The idea that political abdication and a recoil from public life would correlate with uh, the abdication to an authoritarian leader. But we can maybe talk about that a bit later. I want to bring in Alex, who has a couple of questions here. Hi, David. This is Alex. Um, I mean, I do find one thing that you, you've done in your work quite neat, which is um, to kind of flip the question around. The way that the, the sort of the discourse normally has it is to look at um, minorities or the alt-right or um, new emergence of emergence of new um, formations on the left and kind of go, okay, who are these weirdos? What, are, what do they actually think? Um, and to flip the question around and to not treat centrists as a sort of natural thing, but to flip the anthropological gaze around and actually ask, well, who are these weirdos in the center, actually? Um, so I, I quite like that. Um, one thing that struck me, uh, and this came out in the New York Times piece, is that you point out that centrists show less support for liberal institutions. And I wonder if that's true across the board. Um, and I guess following on from that, which institutions do centrists tend to support? Like I'm thinking, for example, about centrist support for counter-majoritarian institutions like the judiciary. So they might not be that keen on um, direct elections for um, a leader, but uh, but they are more keen on the judiciary and the courts and other ways of circumscribing democracy. Um, do you find that the case as well? Yeah, so I think that this question of liberal institutions, there's such a diversity of liberal institutions um, that we'd have to look at. Uh, I think in the, in the case of my analysis, I looked at civil rights, which again, which provides us a really interesting lens, I think, on the status of democracy today. Because if you look at 
views of civil rights. And the question, to be more specific, the question about civil rights and liberal institutions is how fundamental or how essential do you think civil rights are to democracy? Now, of course, we live in a time when uh, we're finding that liberal institutions are decoupling in many ways from democratic politics, where we have leaders who have a lot of democratic legitimacy, but who are not so keen on civil rights. So I, I think that in the same way, to get back to your question about which which liberal institutions uh, attract the centrist imagination, I think we also have to decouple or disaggregate our sense of what those institutions look like. Mm. So, you know, the, the judiciary in many ways is a liberal institution. In many ways, if you are on the, the you know, the sort of Viktor Orban side of things, the new judiciary is a way of uh, bolstering the democratic legitimacy uh, Viktor Orban, but undermining civil rights. The same is true in Poland. So in this emergent kind of a liberal democracy, we find that uh, liberal institutions, as you've defined them, uh, sometimes uh, side with the pro, what we would understand to be pro-democratic uh, sort of group or side of the argument, and sometimes end up on the, on the less democratic side. So I think it's, we're in a moment where, because everyone is kind of scrambling, um, the, the principles of de, of, demo, of liberal democracy right, and the coupling of those two ideas are, is starting to kind of come undone. Mm. And so I don't think there's an easy question, an easy answer when it comes to, you know, is, is there a conviction on behalf of centrists, uh, uh, nor on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the edge of the political spectrum, to any of these given institutions. I think a lot of this is sort of uh, a lot less of that principle politics is showing up when you look at, uh, especially among the that that second branch of centrism, sort of apathetic centrism. Right. Yeah. So I guess you get a you get a split between liberalism on one side and democracy on the other. That this coupling is is not um, a permanent sort of formation. That's exactly right. I want to ask um, ask again a bit about the what you about these uh, breaking down the authoritarian center and perhaps to extrapolate from to what their what the authoritarian centrist utopia <laughs> might look like. So you've characterized a bit of these three you've talked about the three um types of centrism and like you say we we take for granted all of these uh, what we think uh, the far left or the far right might want in terms of their future ideal state or ideal political order so what might based on the data that you've looked at and your thoughts about it what might the authoritarian centrist utopia look like I think quite simply a, a competent technocracy, you know, one that doesn't have to bother with the messy business of politics. But again, the question of the authoritarian centrist utopia depends a lot on, on which coalition of centrists you're attempting to mobilize. Uh, you know, some of these centrists that we talked about are both anti-elite as well as anti-system. And so their version of authoritarian centrism uh, involves the ejection of experts and MPs and the installation of a, of a more populist kind of democratically linked uh, authoritarian who's, who's more responsive to a, a base that's a bit further away from, from elite institutions. Others are much softer on the question of elites and are more, uh, more inclined to trust uh, a, an expert over the kind of crazy populist movements that are being ushered into office today. These are people who respect competence and, and would sort of welcome the arrival of an authoritarian who could 
who could make the promises to kind of deliver stability and guarantee growth and do the things that technocrats really are supposed to do. So I don't think there's a single vision of authoritarian centrism, <coughs> pardon me, or its utopia. But I do think that there's a shared notion that the noise, the clamoring, the noise for, you know, the desire for change that's emanating from the, the ends of this political spectrum is just, it's a bit too noisy. And that if someone could come and just kind of make our lives simpler and easier and make our politics more efficient, that would be a much more desirable mode of political engagement. That's really interesting, David. This is Alex again, um, because it's something that isn't talked about, I think, as you've just said, that the, this sort of um, more populist centrism, that's something that doesn't really get represented very often uh, because it comes from a, so, uh, from, a, from a less elite group. I mean, when we talk about centrists, the common kind of discourse around it is elitist centrists, right, with support for neoliberal policies um, who condescend to both the left and the right, to the working class and so on. Um, but actually, yeah, the, highlighting that there is a that there is a, a kind of a centrist block, as it were, um, who are who are sort of anti elitist, but who retain support for, I guess, for centrist policies, right? I mean, that's what distinguishes them as centrists. I think that this is a very very important constituency, and I, you know, speaking with my American hat on, I think so. Actually, this so this is definitely true uh, in the Hungarian case, in the Polish case. Th- those are quite simply. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very clear cases where you have people who are in the center who understand themselves as being, as being moderate, who would, n- would not identify as being on the far right for various lineages in European history, but also because of their mode of political engagement, uh, that are populist in their political preferences and highly authoritarian in their desire for a simple, uh, effective form of governance. Now, the more contentious claim in my country would be to say that actually the real base of support for, for Donald Trump came from the center. And I think that that's, I think that that's basically true. That mm. the, the problem with Donald Trump and, and the discourse around him is that he did so much issue bundling that he was appealing to a real far-right anger and xenophobia with the claims of building a wall and a very simple, moderate populism when he said, we talked about draining the swamp and cracking down on institutions of the state and just making life simple, uh, reducing taxes, reducing the side of the state, just just making life easier for middle, upper middle class white people, you know? So I think that we're wrong to think that the ba- real base of support in, across Europe and North America uh, for new populist authoritarianism is coming from the extremes. I think that the real, the real heft, the base of support is, is coming from people who at least understand themselves as moderate. I find that really interesting and convincing. I wanted to bring George in to talk a bit more about the article and how it's gone down in terms of responses to it, the New York Times piece. Hi, David. It's, it's George. Thanks for uh, spending time with us talking about all of this. So you've got these, these three sorts of centrist, the elite, the apathetic and the ambivalent. Who, who has least liked uh, this portrait that you've painted of them? Could you tell us a little bit perhaps about the critical responses to the to this uh, to this article of yours yes yeah, so the, the the reaction has been very intense i suppose more intense than i anticipated uh and as you can imagine a lot of people viewed the findings with a real kind of an incredulity i mean many people simply shrugged off the data as being kind of impossible and sent me awful notes to my mailbox about my stupidity and my inability to kind of reckon with reality 
And I think that the reason why it's so upsetting is because there's such a long-standing assumption. You know, as I, so to go back to where we were in the conversation, we had talked about how there's been so little attention paid uh, in, in, in the academy and also in, in, in the popular press about who are these moderates and who are these centrists. And that's enabled an assumption to really fortify, to sort of become concrete in the public imagination that when centrist politicians talk about centrist politics, they're appealing to a kind of silent majority of centrist voters who share with them not only their policy views, but their commitment, their elite commitment to liberal democratic institutions and to the democratic process. And so there's a lot of resistance that I got from people who said, well, this can't possibly be, um, who are really attached to that one-dimensional model of politics that just goes left to right, where everyone's views align in one piece of the political spectrum, and therefore it must make sense in that one-dimensional model that if, you, that if you're anti-democratic, you must exist on the extremes, right? So real resistance to shifting away from a one-dimensional model to a two-dimensional model. Now, there, I've also gotten some, some people who are, who are more academically minded, who have tried to uh, challenge me on methodological grounds to say that the data don't suggest that centrists are indeed so hostile. Uh, and, and they point out that the centrists that I'm talking about aren't sort of not the elite centrists that we that we commonly refer to, that we commonly associate with centrism. And so they look at other other associations. So they point out a close connections between people who vote for extreme parties and hostility to democracy. Now, so I'm sympathetic to that criticism, which is kind of the most robust criticism that I've, that I've received since I published it. Um, but I think there are sort of two important things here. The first is that the left-right spectrum is, is extremely important, not only in political science, but in the world as we understand it, right? So people can criticize me for using the left-right spectrum. That's fine. But you have to throw out a lot of other things if, if you, if you want to criticize the use of the, of the left-right spectrum, right? My point was very simple, that, that if we want to understand, if we want to actually engage with this thing we call uh, the political spectrum, the, the thing we understand as being the far right and the far left, you have to reckon with the actual distribution attitudes on. But I think the second piece, the second response to the critics is most important, which is that my centrists, as I define them in the paper, are an actually existing constituency of people, right, who actually think of themselves at the center. So when elite politicians go out and say, we're talking about a new centrist politics, they may mean one thing, but they're being received on the other end by actually existing people who I self-identify in the middle of the spectrum who are thinking com completely differently from them, right? And so my point is that it's, it's our obligation to understand how that actually existing constituency thinks about the world, regardless of whether or not they are, as, as academics would define them, in behavior in, or in their vote choice, actually extremists. So I found that this, you know, that there's, this has provided a lot of uh, exciting vindication to people, uh, to to comrades who would say, "Aha, you know, the ex the extremes are not are not a problem." Or as as Jacobin would have it, "So much for the intolerant left." I think that that's a reasonable, you know, position. But also, it's a, it's also a bit reductionist. There are obvious huge threats that lurk on uh, the extremes. But my point. And the real major takeaway, or the two, take, two major takeaways that, that, that I think are most important is, one, just because there are crazy, you know, uh, anti-Democrats on the extremes doesn't mean there is anything inherently incompatible between extreme views and democratic politics. 
And the other is that just because you consider yourself a moderate doesn't give you any moral license to speak on behalf of some moral majority that exists in the center of the political spectrum. So to answer your question again, people who have been most riled up, most eager to take me down, have been <clears throat> that brand of elite centrists who like to believe that they are the leaders of a movement mm -hmm. that may be quiet but stands behind them in their commitment to liberal democratic principles. That that's interesting, and I, think, and, I, and I guess yeah, stands to stands to reason. I mean, it's I guess what one would expect. Um, and I guess one another angle on this, I guess, is the idea that I mean, the radical right of of the the far right movements of the past were very explicitly anti-democratic, whereas some people have argued that the radical right populists of today, um, what distinguishes them from the past, is precisely that they might actually help restore democracy rather than seek to abolish it. Um, do you think that is that something that you found as well? Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point about the recasting of, of democracy in, in a kind of post-Soviet, uh, you know, the end of the, so the Soviet Union, where democracy became the norm and, and different kinds of political movements had to reorient themselves around that norm. So there's sort of two, I think there's two important points here. One which, which I think riles up those elite centrists who claim to be the real sort of um, guardians of liberal democracy, is that democracy is not always going to give us the outcome that we want, right? So the far right may well be Democrats. And this is something that we're reckoning with uh, in this question of illiberal democracy in places like Hungary, in places like Italy, in places like Poland, where these people are not violating any democratic principles per se, but, uh, you know, democracy is just not going the way that many people want it to go. So I think you're absolutely right to say that right-wing populists are, are casting themselves in, in the mode of restoring democracy against a kind of uh, anti-democratic, anti-sovereignty European Union. But the other, so that, that applies to the radical right. On, on, the, on the question of the left and how we make sense of this from the left, I think the key takeaway is to remember that a democracy really is and remains quite a radical idea. So yeah. at once, democracy is becoming, uh, you know, has become the norm and lots of radical right movements are having to refashion themselves as being the true inheritors of the democratic tradition. On the other hand, looking to the left, democracy remains an incredibly radical idea, right? Uh, it's not surprising. So if you look around the world, democracy is not really the norm. I mean, it's the norm in name only. But, you know, it's, it's not surprising that in a world that's dominated by elite politics, technocracy, we find that there's a center, a kind of weak center that's saying, fine, whatever, we'll succumb to this, and saying leftists who are saying, no, 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 we've got to stick our necks out for this mode of democratic politics. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's unsurprising that we would see um, this association on the, on, on the left, at least, because I think that the idea of orienting our societies around the mass participation and inclusion of lots of people remains an extremely radical idea. So one reason, this is Philip again, uh, one reason I wasn't at all surprised by your thesis is being in Brexit, Britain at the moment, it seems to me that a significant proportion of Remainers have been viscerally and viciously hostile to democracy since the referendum two years ago. And broadly speaking, this hostility emanates from those who would be seen as um, centrist, liberal left in social terms perhaps, but politically in the centre. So I wondered if there was... If in your, you know, from having looked at all this stuff, whether you think that this centrist authoritarianism, this um, 
either at the elite level or at the more apathetic kind of mass level, how far it's connected to European integration within the European Union or to transnational, uh, the kind of integration into transnational regulatory structures. Because it seems to me there must be, or there seems to be at least a link there with this idea of abdication. You outsource or you hand over uh, political responsibilities to some other kind of authority that will have oversight um, and authority over you. Yeah, I think, I, think that that's, I think that's right. I think that if you look at the case of the EU, the, the, the vast majority of at least that apathetic center has settled into a kind of, you know, has, is sitting in that democratic deficit kind of comfortably uh, and has gotten used to the idea of, as you said, sort of abdicating a democratic voice uh, up to the sort of supranational level. Now, I don't want to lay out all my cards here uh, as, a, as a pro-European, but, um, but I do think that there's a certain, that if there's a real suspicion uh, of, that, that, and a suspicion that has to be grounded in European history, a suspicion of what can happen if there's too much democracy, a real fear that Brexit only, only confirmed of what happens when the voice of the people is, 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 is heard, uh, a fear that, that often t- fails to take into account the context uh, in which democracy is uh, uh, sort of introduced into the political conversation. Um, but there's a real anxiety about taking away power from, from technocrats, trusted technocrats, and putting it back in the hands of people. So I think that you know, the big cleavage that we're talking about here is, is status quo, and people who are comfortable with the status quo and people who are uncomfortable with the status quo. And this goes back to our varieties of centrism. I think you could be more authoritarian on either side of that cleavage. So we're finding centrists in my formulation who are pro-status quo, so in your formulation who are, who are encouraging of the project of European transnational integration, who are happy to kind of abdicate their responsibility. We're also finding people who are anti-status quo, who are anti-system, but who still don't want to go back don't want to do this democratic song and dance, but want to have someone they trust, a populist leader who's going to sort of deliver on their democratic will or deliver, sorry, on, on, on the people's preference without the, without the mess of democracy, right? So I think that it's, there's no easy answer on sort of all these pure technocrats or pure populists. We're seeing a mix of this existing among self-identified moderates. That's I interesting. Did. I wanted to, <laughs> we jumped in on top of each other. Uh, I wanted to bring in Alex to expand some to expand some of these points to the developing world because you mentioned that in your article as well. Yeah, hi David, it's Alex. Uh, as we're a, a global politics podcast, I think we can't leave this out. Uh, one thing that you note is that in the developing world, centrist support for authoritarianism is hardly a rare thing. And you cite Brazil, Argentina, Indonesia. Um, could we infer from that, I guess, that maybe the post-war period in the West, um, in which centrists supported democracy as the default, that that maybe was a historically unique period? I think that that is exactly right. I mean, I think that what's happening in political science, at least, is that the barrier that we once put up between the politics of developed democracies and the politics of developing democracies has been broken down. So we used to think, you know, oh, developed democracies over this sort of threshold of GDP earn their own theoretical frameworks. And that modernization theory, as it's called, or democratization theory, just has a totally different set of variables. I think that we're finding here is that there's intense similarities between these, t- these types of democracies 
in the ways in which when you have periods of upheaval, of, of, of major economic transformation, you have a large constituency of people who are, you know, decently comfortable, uh, who are in the middle, who are middle class, kind of moderate people, who are who, who are just not interested in, in radical politics and radical change and radical projects and are m- much keener to move to a kind of simpler uh, simpler time, a simpler, more efficient form of government. So I think that it's time, about time that we incorporate insights from historical cases in the developing world, ongoing cases in the developing world. I mean, if you look at Singapore, you've got a, a real live case in terms of where the base of support uh, is coming from, uh, and, and, just, and trying to reflect a little bit on what is the relationship between uh, European, North American, uh, or Anglophone countries and, uh, and the so-called developing world. That's really great and really interesting stuff. Thank you very much. All right, this is Alex. Uh, George and Phil with me here. We're going to have a little chat amongst ourselves about what we found about that. I found it really fascinating. Phil, any points you want to draw out immediately from that? Yeah, abdication. I pushed David a bit, bit about this in the discussion, but the notion that authoritarianism is, well, linking authoritarianism to the center but also that it's, I mean, I think what he was saying is that there's like a spontaneous affinity, in fact, between centrism and authoritarianism, and that the spontaneous affinity or the connection between the two things is this idea of abdication, the idea of relinquishing responsibility, re, response, political responsibility for yourself, for controlling your own destiny and your own future, yeah. abdicating that to somebody else. And that seems to me to be... Um, I mean, that seems to me to stretch back in European history as explaining authoritarianism in Europe um, and that it's an important part of understanding authoritarianism in deep, you know, in the interwar period in European history as well. And that it's good to have it back on the table in terms of how we understand authoritarian tendencies today. That's interesting, but I'm not sure I totally agree. I mean, at least the post-war period in Europe, which was the question that I pushed David on, seemed like that was a period in which the center supported democracy. Like they were the most democratic where you you had to the left people who were um, kind of trans-democratic or wanted to create, you know, to have a revolution and, and create a different sort of society. And then you have the right who are less democratic. And so it seems to be something particular to this sort of neoliberal period where centrists want to abdicate responsibility, don't want popular sovereignty, is it, or you, well, I'm, I'm thinking of well, I'm thinking of mass support for fascism. So right. outside of the, insofar as fascist parties in the interwar period managed to capture um, mass support, a lot of it must, you know, must and was based outside of the extreme, and spoke, I imagine, to a lot of they captured a lot of the middle class by promising decisive solutions that would um, resolve political turbulence, that would, you know, put an end to the exhaustion of yeah. um, political upheaval and tumult and everyone demanding a say and all of this stuff. Yeah, deal with this and messiness. Seems, Take all this messiness away. Yeah. We just need to, to impose some order. And yeah. get it, you know, put it out of sight. I don't want to have to deal with it. I want to abdicate political responsibility and get on, kind of tend my own garden, let somebody else deal with it. So... I think that is I mean, the abdication and authority, political abdication and authoritarianism seems to me to be an important notion to keep in mind. Right, but mm, I it's mean, quite, it's quite interesting because you have. It, it seems then, if you have a, a kind of a context of there is no alternative, i.e., no left or or right projects which are fundamentally different, then maybe it's technocracy, which is the thing which is 
different and that's just allows the centrist to i guess escape from escape from democracy and escape from politics yeah it could i mean this didn't occur to me but thinking about it now it didn't occur to me when we're chatting but you know it could give you a whole new kind of um, model of political space right uh one and we're into modeling political space on this program um so it could give you a whole new model of political space where authoritarianism emanates from uh, the abdicate. You know, I guess authoritarianism is about the disavowal of political responsibility, and that it can take many different forms, from support for fascist parties in the interwar period, to support for neoliberal technocracy in the post Cold War period, something like that. You know, there's a different kind of model. But now it's just people are bored. Board of board of democracy, not thinking they've got something more exciting. I think that was the appeal of fascism, right? It was exciting and but they were exhausted. Well, to some people, though, but I think to it must have spoken to people who were exhausted by politics. Whereas we haven't had politics for a very long time, and people are terrified of it. So the reaction against repoliticization of Brexit, I think, in the UK mainly, or the possibility of repoliticization, is terror of politics, fear of politics. But yeah, I mean, I think, and we have to be specific about where we're talking, um, where we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah. I mean, you know, in the developing world, in the semi-periphery, a lot of the support for uh, anti-democratic solutions, and I'm thinking obviously about Brazil right now, but it's by no means uh, specific to just Brazil, is that, you know, deal with this messiness. Someone needs to deal with this messiness. Democracy, we have too much democracy, is basically the fundamental proposition of, um, you know, the kind of authoritarianism today. Uh, that um, too many people are having their say. No one has responsibility. Those who are in charge are only interested in themselves. There's no public spiritedness. Therefore, you need some um, authoritarian solution, whether that's military this, intervention but, or the judiciary taking charge. Or but this is what I'm saying. Though it's not. It doesn't come after a period of high politicization, right? Which is so. In the interwar period, you have an intense kind of um, politicization and a reaction against that of exhaustion. Um, and a desire for strong leadership to resolve the messiness. Whereas now we have the messiness arising from the disintegration of technocracy and the desire for more explicit authoritarianism as a result of that, I think. Yeah, I think, so that's, this, I think that's right. Yeah, this actually, there was something that I was thinking about um, because I guess one of the questions which might answer uh, or one of the things that could answer some of these um, points is how will this change in five years' time? with the next wave of the European Value Survey or the World Value Survey. Because I think David made a really interesting point about Brexit confirming for some people the fear that too of too much democracy, that that fear is justified. So yeah. are we going to, how, how will these results change when the next, uh, when we kind of have the, the, the Brexit effect taken into account in, or the Brexit, Trump, et cetera, effect taken yeah. into come, account in the, in the data? Come back in, come back in five years' time, listeners, to listen <laughs> to the next episode of Afabunga Bunga. Indeed. That's, that's um, the kind of the long long durée that we're uh, we're podcasting in. Podcasting for the long haul. I mean, one thing that David said, and I think we should restate this and endorse this explicitly, democracy is a radical idea and it's something that was forgotten about for a long period of time um, from this end of the Second World War until 2010 or however you want to kind of periodize that, but that democracy is a radical idea and that notion has to be seized upon again. Um, that the messiness that people either the boredom or the messiness uh, that people react against you know and in and seek an authoritarian solution instead uh, we're not proposing we're not defending as democrats we're not defending the messiness of necessarily of democratic politics um 
the kind of corruption that people react against is actually a reflection of a lack of democracy, of insufficient democracy, insufficient popular power. Um, and I think you have to be quite explicit on that. And that's really where I think the left and the right divide on this question. If you have this sort of the center being authoritarian, what the right propose um, is to, um, I guess, take back control, but in a way which disempowers people or excludes people, whereas the left democratic proposition is that it is taking back control, it's seizing power, but it's in an inclusive way of bringing new people, new constituencies uh, into the sort of democratic game, into the well, public sphere. Well, that, that's what the left should be, but the left isn't, I think. Well, indeed. And I think the, um, the you know, I think the right, I mean, the right, the affinity of the right for democracy is thin. Yeah. So at the moment, it's um, it's kind of in the position. It's being in the position of having to use democracy as a battering ram. But if I mean this goes back to George's question of predictions. I mean I suppose if we would hazard a prediction, the radical right I imagine will probably increasingly drop democracy, um, and then the question will be who will pick it up, right? Because the left has not. As as of yet, the left has been unwilling to um, unwilling to really wield uh, the democratic mandate where it's got it, or unwilling to pick it up and to try and fight for it. Yep, that's it for this week. We hope we've shed some light on this topic. The radical question of democracy demands discussion, and we here at Alpha Bunga Bunga are trying to do it justice. Thanks again to David Adler and listener. Do get in touch with any thoughts, arguments, disagreements. We're back next with interviews and reflections on two important elections in Colombia and in Turkey. Catch you later. Bye-bye.